0: This podcast is brought to you by yorktrito.com and comes with a warning. Never seek praise from your political hero. It's bound to backfire badly. Look what my hero had to say about me.
1: I mean, you as an ideas person, someone new in public life, not besmirched by the Thing, what a joke. And let me not hear from the press gallery ever again about this as a non-political person. I mean, frankly, frankly, well... Well, f- well, faint if we hear that again. That, now, let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, unless he's in with a question in his hand written by someone on his staff, and with a he's useless, useless, absolutely. In yes, fact, Mr. Speaker, Mr. speaker, it's an insult to one's professional skills to have to be in such a debate. To have to be in such a debate. He thought bluster and volume and decibels were to there for, for, for substitute for quality, quantity to substitute for quality, and amplitude and noise to substitute for real argument. I mean, this is the sort of humbug which just makes us sick. And it's particularly made us sick about you. You fraud! You disgraceful, disgusting fraud! The, the answer is, mate, mate, because I want the to do you more. slowly. I want to do you slowly. I mean... No, no. I know, there's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And in the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. And uh, I want to see those ashen face performances, more of them. I want to be encouraged. I want to see you squirm out of this load of rubbish over a period of months. There's going to be no easy execution for you. No easy execution for you, and if you think I'm going to put you out of your misery quickly, you can think
0: again. Welcome, potties and gladdies, to episode number eight of Reflective Contemplations, the modern version of a political fireside chat. After four days of constant adrenaline, plenty of coffee and tobacco, a huge come down on Saturday night with two bottles, mind you, two bottles, not glasses, of French red wine, it is time for my first election post-mortem. Now, what I want to do as far as possible is to take off my partisan hat. I'm a capital D Democrat, as you well know. And I want to talk to you about the implications of this election. Now, first of all, I must commend CNN, which is not always my favorite news network in the United States. their the election coverage was absolutely superb. It was informative, it was calm, it was rational, and it didn't lack any historic perspective either. So let's just get that out of the way, and let's get right into the election. Now, as you remember, when I spoke to you last, I was pretty convinced that Trump would win. Of course, I knew at the time that approximately 95 million of Americans voted by postal ballot, and this would heavily trend toward biden especially in the swing states perhaps with the exception of arizona but i did not expect biden to make up enough ground to really convincingly beat donald trump in the swing states i remember we was still pretty close but the blue wall is back biden ran on the premise that he could re-establish the Blue Wall. That is Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. That's what he did. And apparently he flipped Arizona and he might have flipped even Georgia. Georgia is a state that has not been won by a Democratic presidential nominee since 1992, since uh, Clinton ran in 1992. Now that's number one. That was quite impressive. And um, When I reflect on Biden's win and Trump's loss, you might remember when I spoke to you last that I said this election is not a repudiation of Trumpism. Now, I stand by that even today. And let me tell you what I mean. Look first at the popular vote. Now, Biden got approximately 75 million, possibly even more. Counting is still ongoing as I speak, especially on the West Coast. So Biden may have a lead over Trump by approximately five million. Might be a bit, bit more than that. But Donald Trump got 70 million votes. For Biden, historically speaking, this has been the most number of votes any presidential nominee in US history won. But Trump won more votes than any other presidential nominee as well. And that brings me to my first observation. Biden did not make inroads with Trump voters. He didn't flip many Trump voters. In fact, Donald Trump extended his base, he turned out numbers, and that that I think is an impressive achievement. What Biden did, of course, is he turned out more people even. And he managed to did it in the right states as well, the states that matter. And this, of course, is an achievement as well. The idea that this election is a game changer in American politics is pretty much off the rails because Republicans did also very well. Republicans did incredibly well. Trump lost, even though he doesn't concede, and all sorts of bluster and noise is coming out of the White House. I'm gonna delve into that in just a second. Republicans did incredibly well across the nation. Democrats may not win the Senate as it currently stands. Uh, Republicans will have 50 senators. Democrats at the moment have 48. There will be a runoff in Georgia. uh, Two Senate seats are up for grabs, both in Georgia, and there will be a contest election on January 5th. Now, theoretically, the Democrats would have to win both in this still Republican red-leaning state. Now, how likely is that? It's not impossible, but it's not very likely. Unless the Democrats win both Senate positions and have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker, they will not control the Senate. In the House, however, and this is interesting as well, the Democrats lost From what I've heard last, perhaps 13 seats, perhaps even more. The majority reduced to 222 seats out of 435. This may still change. One seat up, one seat down. We will see. Counting is still ongoing. There are many races in in a divided country that are incredibly close. Now, this means that Democrats have taken a hit in Congress. And Republicans' chances of winning the midterm election in 2022 look pretty promising. Secondly, as far as the states are concerned, Republicans held all legislatures. I think they flipped a few. They won at least one additional governorship. They maintained control in almost all houses, senates, etc. they controlled before the election. So this is what I mean when I wrote on my blog, um, this is a very complex election. This has been a very complex election. Because on the one hand, you have a president losing, but you have a political party that is benefiting enormously from huge turnout. And that goes primarily for the Republicans. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us a lot about Donald Trump's appeal and about his continuing influence. And even if he is forced eventually to leave the White House, he will not go away, and his legacy will not go away. Now, what is interesting about uh, Trump and the behavior of the Republicans in Congress is that, how can I put it best? Um, the, the interesting thing about uh, is that Trump's influence ensures that many Republicans, knowing that Trump has lost the election, are still standing by him. Now, you have some Republicans like Mitt Romney who have com- congratulated um, the, the president-elect Biden to, for his victory. You, you still have a lot of Republicans that stand by. They know, according to sources, particularly sources cited on, on political uh, Politico.com, they know they have lost. They are very smart people like Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, but they are still happy to appear on Fox News and, you know, uh, spin all that, that um, nonsense of election fraud, etc, etc. Why are they doing this? Are they dumb? Are they not smart enough? They are very smart. Ted Cruz is an incredibly smart man. He was a good lawyer and he argued himself uh, election cases in front of the Supreme Court. Cruz knows perfectly well there is no path for Donald Trump to retain the White House. Why is he doing that? Two reasons. Many Republicans, according to Politico and their reporting, are afraid of not so much Donald Trump, but of his supporters. So the idea of playing to the base, especially keeping in mind the huge turnout and the the fact that Republicans have done incredibly well nationwide, prompts that behavior. You have to see it in that light. And also it's good for donations, Uh, Politico Politico reported, for example, that Cruz was very happy to send out an email after his appearance on Fox News and to cash in. You know, he's a possible presidential contender in four years. You're going to have to see that in this this political environment, in this political ecosystem. Now, what is interesting is that as far as the legal cases uh, the Trump campaign is now pursuing in courts are concerned and the recounts, well, let me say something about recounts, because uh, some of my American friends asked me about this, what, I, what, what my thoughts are on recounts. Now, first of all, the, the Trump campaign in most swing states is, is perfectly entitled to ask for recounts. In fact, in Pennsylvania and Georgia, the close margin necessitates a recount by law. So that's not a problem. That's done all the time. Recounts usually turn only a few hundred votes. So the idea that in Michigan, for example, you can overturn more than 100,000 votes. In Pennsylvania, you can overturn tens of thousands of votes. In Georgia, you can overturn a 10,000-vote lead. it's possible, but it's very, very unlikely. As far as history goes and previous examples, it's not going to happen. The legal strategy of the Trump campaign is not very promising, and most Republicans know that. I want to draw your attention to a very respected lawyer across the board. He's a Republican lawyer who appeared on CNN a couple of times, Ben Ginsberg. He represented the George W. Bush campaign in front of the Supreme Court in 2000, and he said very clearly, this is a non-starter. Legally, this is not going to resonate at all. Because judges are usually very, very skeptical if any political party tries to disenfranchise voters. And it is interesting that the bluster now coming out of the White House has not much of a legal ground. But of course, it, it will poison the political climate. And that's the strategy behind it. It, is, it will ensure that a lot of Trump supporters, and we see that already in some demonstrations, stop the steal that has started and resonated on social media, that the Trump campaign will generate perhaps enough momentum to ensure that Biden's presidency is seen as illegitimate from day one. And that's concerning. And it's especially concerning because Republicans do not oppose it properly for political reasons, understandable political reasons. Sometimes you're going to have to take off your party hat and you're going to have to do what's right for America. And if you want to do what's right for America, then you're going to have to say, Donald, stop this. You know, and at some stage, I think there will be a day of reckoning. Now, obviously, at the moment, they are not doing it. I think eventually they, not, they will have no choice to do it. But for the moment, the Republican ecosystem does not allow them to do it. Or, doesn't, or it makes it very difficult for them to do that number one. So when you hear a lot about this, those legal suits and these uh, recounts, don't get too enthusiastic about it because it's not going to change the outcome. I can absolutely guarantee you it's not going to change the outcome unless the Trump campaign can, in a court of law, evidence-based show that there's, there has been serious election fraud that potentially would turn 10,000 or a few hundred thousand votes. And remember, in a court of law, you need evidence. And the president has never been very good at producing evidence for anything he says. So that's number one. Nonetheless, Trump is still there. He will be there politically. And some in the Trump campaign have already started to entertain the notion of Trump uh, making a political comeback in 2024. Obviously, four years is a long time in politics, it's a pretty long time in Republican politics as well, but it is possible. It is possible, and even if he doesn't run for president again, he will, be a f- he will remain a force in Republican politics. So, as much as I personally had wanted this election to be a clear repudiation of Trumpism, it was not. His ideas, his legacy, and perhaps he himself, are there to stay. We're gonna to have to live with that. That's something that those that truly wanna understand America have to have to come to grips with. Now Biden. I must say his speech was very good. His appeal to Americans to unite, I mean Barack Obama has done it. Donald Trump on his in his first inaugural uh, in his first speech following the election of twenty sixteen has said it, but I think Biden is uniquely suited to do it. For various reasons. First of all, and I know that some of my progressive friends will not like to hear that, he may be forced to adopt a very moderate stance on policy issues, because the Senate is likely to be controlled by Republicans. And we because the Democrats have such, hold such a narrow majority in the House, that means obviously that a lot of centrist Democrats can vote alongside with Republicans. So, my progressive friends, rest assured, your policy agenda is not going to fly. Um, at least not until the next midterm. Now, I think that is very good for Biden. Biden, by nature, is a centrist. He has always been a centrist. And I think he will do whatever he can to, well, do this thing called triangulation. You know, I've, I've referred to that a couple of times. It means you take an ideological position that is somewhat between your party and the Republicans. Now, obviously, it depends a lot on the Republican approach. I think by putting himself in some contrast to the hard progressive wing of the Democrats, he has a good chance to achieve that. I know it will make a lot of people unhappy, it makes me unhappy to some degree, I've got to be honest with you, but again, I I speak here uh, as a political analyst and not as a Democrat. Um, So I think if he does that, then he has a good chance to become an effective president and maybe in with a good chance for election in four years, as far as is possible to say. Obviously, as I said, four years is is a long time in politics, not just for Democrats, but for Republicans as well, for both political parties. That's what Biden has to do. Obama always dismissed the idea of triangulation. He didn't think much of it. In my opinion, he paid a high political price in the second term. But that's, it's debatable, but that's my opinion. I know triangulation has become a dirty word in American politics. I think, you know, as Clinton has shown in in the mid 1990s, has a lot going for it. So that's what Biden has to do. I think he's gonna do it. He will have to balance carefully because he, of course, has to maintain his progressive base. But we have to accept today that progressives did not as well as we all thought they would be doing. That's the reality of American politics at the moment. Now, one final point I want to make in this little fireside chat. Transitions. They're important. And I will point you on my blog. I don't know whether I have the time to write this all up today, but I will point you to, to a great website where you can do your own research if you're interested in tran- uh, presidential transitions. It's a Center for Presidential Transitions. It's a bipartisan organization that gives by bi- guidance on organizing transitions how they should be done, how they have been done in the past. It's a great resource for those really interested in transitions. And they have their own podcast too. I think it's called Transition Lab. I have just subscribed to it, but I haven't listened to it yet. So that's what I'm going to do next. But you should do as well. I hope some of you are with me on that point. Now, unlike in a parliamentary democracy... Transitions in a presidential system like that of the U.S. are incredibly complex. They're huge. There are thousands of civil servants changing. So you talk about a Biden Washington, a Trump Washington, a Obama Washington, because the sheer number of political appointees is enormous. That's very different from the idea of public service we have in parliamentary democracies, like here in Germany, in the U.K., in Australia, New Zealand. You know, so it's worth focusing on that. And what usually happens is that prior to the election, um, the campaigns have their own transition teams in place very long before election day. I think sometimes even 16, 18 months before the election. What happens shortly before the election, the chief of staff of the incumbent president, and the chair of the transition campaign uh, of the opponent or of those who, you know, run for office as well, they sign a memorandum of understanding. And that memorandum of understanding basically spells out how the transition is going to be conducted. What happens after the, transi- uh, after the election is that the uh, chief or chairperson of the GSA, the General Services Administration, makes available funds for the transition team of the winning party. That's approximately at the moment from what I've gleaned on the website of that transition uh, bipartisan uh, center for presidential transitions. That's approximately $6 It's more than $6 million. Now, it's interesting that the current head of the GSA, a Trump appointee, who, though, has been unanimously confirmed by the Senate, so with Democrats as well, has not made those funds available. Now, that's strange. I think that should happen fairly soon, but it's not a good omen of how this particular um, transition will be conducted. So after the election, now it's interesting to go through the twilight zone Of presidential transitions and this one will be a rocky ride. There's no provision that requires a president to concede the election. You can run a transition pretty much autonomously, apart from the government, but it it makes it much harder to start on January 20th. So even without the cooperation of the president, I hope down the bureaucracy there will be at least some informal uh, cooperation and the signs are, as far as credible media sources report in the US, that this is already happening. So even if Trump uh, continues to behave like a, like a uh, adolescent, and, uh, you know, he, he, it's not that important, there will be contacts between the Biden transition and, and some government agencies, I'm pretty sure that's going to be done. Either way, you know, and I'm gonna will keep focusing on that. We will see, especially who Trump, who by President-elect Biden nominates. It will be interesting, whom he nominates to be his chief of staff, uh, secretary of state. There's some talk about Elizabeth Warren as treasurer or Bernie Sanders as secretary of labor. I find that very, very much questionable. Seeing the result that that's going to happen, especially if the Senate, uh, if the Senate remains in, in Republican hands then I think you know, uh, Biden would, will probably try to choose some more middle-of-the-road centrist candidates than Warren or Sanders. So that's going to be interesting because these appointees will show us what approach President-elect Biden is taking toward government. Well, that's what I want to leave you with today. We have a 46th president, Joe Biden, president-elect, historically, a woman of color as vice president, which makes me incredibly happy, uh, Kamala Harris, and we have no repudiation of Trumpism. Trumpism, America first, and all the other ideological components uh, that go with it is there to stay. So I expect a very difficult transition and a very difficult presidency. And it will be interesting how Democrats will position themselves. And it is striking that I think progressives have gone a bit quiet since the election because they expected a very different outcome. Now, I hoped for a different outcome, but I'm always cautious with progressive politics in America. But we'll see how Biden treads that path. Is it difficult? It's a fraud one. But Biden, I think, is uniquely qualified to to do that and to assume the mantle, the role of a unifier in American politics. I said Biden was a weak candidate. Was I wrong or right? I, I guess it depends on your own hopes, on your own policy agenda. But as I said before, I, I don't want to go into that now, but he, he may he will be, if he does what he does best, he will be a strong president. Well, that's enough for today. I wish you all well. The election is over and we will see what comes on politically next. But I will keep my eyes now very, very, very closely on the transition. And please do visit this website or Google it, Center for Presidential Transitions, and then you will find it. And it's it's just really worth exploring and have a look at their podcast, Transition Lab. So you will get a lot of information on that. And I'm always happy if I can point you to powerful, incredible sources of information in that toxic social media environment. You know. Well, stay safe. Thank you very much for listening. If you like that podcast, give me a like. You can subscribe on Spotify, on Castro, on Pocket Cast, and wherever you got get your podcasts. And, well... Goodbye. Speak soon. Stay safe. This podcast was brought to you by YorkTrader.com. And what is my political hero saying now?
1: Don't waste your time on me, son. Don't waste your time on me. I've been around. I know you. I know you. I know where the skeletons are in your closet.